and nothing ontological oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Epistemology is the philosophical system associated with knowledge claims. But no matter how many brilliant people devise the endless rules for how we categorize knowledge, a true philosopher always has a nagging question. But how do we know we know? If left unchecked, this regressive line of questioning can take us to some strange scenarios. Skepticism is the Ouroboros of the philosophy world. Much like the snake that eats its own tail, skepticism is at once what makes philosophy possible and what threatens to destroy it. All right, so I butchered that name again. No, no. no. Well, well, it's it's fine. It's well, it's not like it gets talked about every day. Yeah. The snake that eats its tail, we all recognize that, but Ouroboros is a mouthful. Yeah, it's funny. It's one of those things. This happens to me all the time because I'm widely read, but I'm also reclusive. So, so I read a lot of words, but then I don't say them. So I just. In my head, I come up with what I think that it sounds like. But then when I, I go to actually pronounce it, and I'm like, oh, that doesn't, I don't think that's how that's said. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's So today, we're doing something for the first time, um, probably in, in the first of many times, and that is doing a part two of an episode. So we've discussed skepticism in the past. And I would encourage listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode, to go back and listen to it. Um, it's a difficult discussion. Uh, I'm I'm kind of learning some some things about skepticism as we're talking about them, and uh, we cover a lot of a lot of groundwork and a lot of history about it. Um, and I'm sure in this episode we'll cover um, some of the things that we covered in that episode. But we're going to try to get into um, some more sort of abstract or conceptual questions about skepticism in this episode. Um, but we're into our 73rd or 4th, something like that episode. Yeah, so it's only yeah. a matter of time, right, before we start to revisit some of these things that we've we've talked about in the past. So let's start by by picking it apart a little bit more than we did last time. What are some components of skepticism? At its base, skepticism it questions uh, the rea- reliability of knowledge claims. So we had a lovely epistemological discussion <coughs> very recently <laughs> last time, and and as you said in the introduction, there there one uh, leads to the other in a sense. One nips at the other's tail. But really what it comes down to and, and what it has come down to across the millennia is the idea of how reliable, how strong is any claim of knowledge that you make, and which also then makes one think, well, what do we mean by strong and how do we, how do we get there? And that's where the relationship is between the two. Okay. So – is there something that separates skepticism from merely questioning or doubting something? Yes, because that base skepticism is focused on it's not it's not a destructive force, although it can be if it's untamed. <laughs> and you were referring to that, uh, and, and so at base, what it's trying to do is to determine if knowledge is possible. And if knowledge is possible, uh, what kinds of claims do we make? How careful are we about making them? Are they bigger claims than we ought to be able to make? But it's all about eventually, uh, uh, I think optimistically, trying to get to a place where we can be not absolutely certain ever, but we can be more certain about some things. Okay. So, yeah, it's almost, um, I think that there's a systematicity to it where, you know, questioning, you can question something and really not have an aim or direction. Same thing with doubting, right? You can kind of be like, okay, well, you know, well, why is this this way? And then you can ask a completely other off-base question, or you can just say, well, I'm going to doubt this thing just because intuitively it doesn't feel right yeah. whereas skepticism is is sort of a um it's a process right so you're 
you're looking at something and then you're kind of logically examining it and then asking questions that are specifically meant to um, kind of define the the base of knowledge or the problem or whatever it is that you're examining right. in order to determine what what it's about. And it can be done with total uh, disingenuity. It can be disingenuous, which essentially means that it can be done with the purpose of, of trying to upend uh, something that doesn't need to be upended in that way. So it can, it can, in other words, be be done by people who just want to poke holes in things, even though they don't believe that those questions that they're asking are questions that ought to be asked. Yes. I have um I have friends who are are lawyers and they love doing this kind of thing just yeah. for fun, right? So yeah. they just like to argue. If you if there's a good chance that if you're a, a lawyer as your profession, you probably just like to argue, right? And um that it's in in some cases, I think it can be malicious, but in in the cases of these guys, I think it's mostly just an exercise, right? Yeah. So it's like I'm going to take uh, a position that maybe I know is false, or maybe you know I know is is difficult to defend, just because I want to see if I can argue, you know, argument my way out of it. And in yeah. that case, you're it's it's disingenuous in that case because rather than trying to arrive at the truth. You may actually phrase things or specifically avoid certain questions in order to be um, deceptive or to try to present an argument in an alternate light in order to portray it as being truth or as the stronger position. Certainly. When in reality, you, you might intellectually know that it's not. Rhetorical misuse as it has happened since the sophists. So we, we, you know, we, 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 talked about that before but if you think of it as in a gamesmanship kind of way uh, or gaming way skepticism is the kind of process in which you take you take the attack or you take the play right to the home field being the home field of whatever in professional fields you're talking about. So it's not like you invite the doctors over into the skeptical place. No, you, you go to the doctors and you say, here are a bunch of questions, right? right. Medical questions, for instance. And so it's portable right. <laughs> that way. Okay. So do you think that there's a, a tension between emotion and logic in skepticism? There has been for probably as long as, as skepticism in a formal sense has, has existed because there are the rationalists who say that the logic and reason are the basis uh, basis for everything and then there are there are those who say that that the emotional intuitive uh, capacity of the mind is what can lead to some pretty stunning skeptical results hmm. Yeah, it's funny. We were just talking about this actually um, before we started the episode. Uh, yeah. You and me and my wife, um, we we're talking. When we do projects around the house, um, my wife is the is the type who um, she's she's emotional. Like you know, she thinks, okay, well, I want to get this thing done because I think it will improve stuff. So I'm going to jump in and, and do it. But when she involves me in the projects, what happens is I, I look at it rationally, right? And I say, well, here's this, this, and this reason that this might not work out. And she says, well, why are you being so pessimistic? And I'm like, well, no, I'm just thinking about it logically. But in reality, um, what happens time and time again, right, is so here I am thinking that I'm just being completely rational, pointing out what sort of issues we'll run into and trying to think of ways to mitigate them. And what she's saying is, well, you're being negative about it. Like, we should just jump in and try to do it. Nine times out of ten, if we just jump in and try to do it, it works out fine, right? <laughs> so I think that there's something to be said about that, right? And, and you know, when I was in the military, they talked about this a lot. The, the capabilities of, of a human are far beyond what a human thinks their capabilities are, right? Mm -hmm. If you're put into a scenario... Um, you can do much more than you think, and you can even sort of, you know, hack your mind in something that's not a life or death scenario where there isn't adrenaline and all that stuff. If you, you can, you can get past it and say, all right, 
well, I'm just going to keep going, right? I'm just going to keep doing this thing or I'm going to try this or whatever. So there are some cases where um, we might think we're being totally rational, right? But in, in a way, my wife is is right. On a, on a scale of, you know, with zero being completely pessimistic and 10 being completely optimistic, I'm probably a four. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm laying out these rational things, I'm not complete being completely objective. And so as a result, I'm throwing in some obstacles or I'm, I'm thinking things are going to be a little bit more difficult than they're actually going to be. And so here I am designing this big master plan and trying to, to, to avoid these issues that, that don't turn out to be real. Um, whereas in, in some cases, if we just jumped into it, right, the, our ingenuity and our creativity and our intellect and these sorts of things would be able to pretty easily overcome yeah. most of the obstacles that we would encounter normally. So I think that that's a pretty good example of this, this sort of balancing act between emotion and logic, right? Um, I think that in, in philosophy, we tend towards the logical, the rational, you know, and people tend to, to say, well, there's, you know, you're trying to trying to strip emotions out of it as much as possible to get down to the brass tacks. Yeah. But humans are inherently emotional creatures, and that emotion can play a powerful role in shaping cognitive processes and how we come to um, solve problems. Yes, and if, and if emotions are vilified, which they have been in the long sweep, if you take the long view on any ism, but with skepticism as we are now, the push and pull of, oh, we need to be, uh, the rationality is king and and emotions have to be put aside or emotions surface and rationality gets beaten back and, and all kinds of combinations in between. This has been a push-pull since the start. And it leads to, uh, when, you're, when you're going for the primarily the rational route or depending upon logical argument, then you tend toward the bigger picture kinds of things, uh, systemic kinds of things but sometimes that gets dismantled by an over not an overabundance because that break that suggests a judgment an abundance of an emotional or uh, perhaps intuitive approach generally probably leads to more micro mm. kinds of discussions or concerns and i think both are necessary yeah yeah and you know and that i think that that bears out anecdotally in in my experience um and lots of times if you're taking those big system views um you you come to conclusions that are notably erroneous because of the way that small things have ripple effects right so i can come up with this big picture plan but if one little thing goes wrong at the beginning of that it echoes throughout the whole thing. And by the time you get to the big picture, it, it doesn't look anything like what it yeah. looked like originally. House ownership is like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're doing projects, you view experience. Yes. It, um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. So let's talk about logic a little bit. We, we toyed with the idea of, of devoting a whole episode to it. Um, but you, you sort of brought up um, the fact that logic as important and, and sort of monolithic as it is, is actually pretty simple, and um, it's considered one of the pillars of philosophy. Yeah. Um. So it does deserve some sort of recognition, but there's probably not enough to fill up a whole episode. But I think in the context of skepticism, talking about logic is is an important. It thing. is because logic is, is the, the two the two. I, I over reduce it, but that's what we do, so we can have the discussion. The the two parts of logic are making an argument that holds together and then examining that argument well skepticism is 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 about inquiring of the the word itself skeptikos meant inquirer (laughs) and so inquiring minds want to know you know where that comes from that tabloid that from forever ago Uh, and so the idea of Thinking about an argument 
you're really the second part is what holds with skepticism. The questioning one does about the soundness of an argument or the or the scope that of an argument that has been made. And again, that goes back to do you have adequate grounds for assertions or assumptions that you are making? As so, so skepticism, I think, applied authentically is about trying to determine those grounds, trying to increase or reduce the scope of a particular uh, statement, uh, trying to mitigate dogmatism or ideological line towing so that you can see or attempt to bring light into what may be accepted without the questioning that it needed. Yeah, and this is this is something we kind of covered a, a little bit last week with epistemology, mm-hmm. and it I think it's it's kind of the key to what we were talking about. You know, we you know, like I talked about in the intro, you have the skepticism being the snake eating its own tail, right? Skepticism is what makes philosophy possible, but it also is what threatens to destroy it, right? And I think that some of that does come back to um, logic, and and like we were talking about in the epistemology episode last week, there's flavors of skepticism, right? Not all skepticism is is created. Exactly. You have extremist skepticism in the sense of saying that all knowledge is suspect. In fact, knowledge might not even be able to exist. The only thing that you can put any stock in, so to speak, is your immediate experience. That's really extreme, but it's used by people, of course. And then it goes down to the very micro, the very limited kind of skepticism, which then this is where it's brought to bear in specific instances, instances or situations or, or field specific problems. And it's interesting, right? Because, um, in science, right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm working in, in psychology. Psychology is a science, right? You use, you use the same scientific method processes and these sorts of things. What I find interesting is so different, different theories and different paradigms within science, you never prove them. You, they can be disproved. You don't prove them. You just have evidence that supports them. And what you find in a lot of cases is that certain models are useful in certain situations and not others. So rather than a model being true, right? Okay, we have this model of the brain, and this is the way that it is. Instead, it's, okay, well, here's a model of the brain, and if you're studying behavior in a social context, this works. But here's a different model of the brain, and if you're studying um, cognition in an individual context, this works. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, tried to, if you tried to swap them, they wouldn't work. Does it make the theories invalid? No. What it means is that, okay, this thing has plenty of support for working in this instance. One of those things, so I, and you know, I, I'm, I'm wondering if skepticism in some ways can be used similarly, right? If we, if I, if you, we use like an information processing model of the brain, right? You look at the brain and how you acquire um, knowledge, it physiologically. Mm. So you have sensory input and then you have working memory and then you have long-term memory. To me, the interesting part about that for a skeptic would be the sensory input. Sensory input happens in just you know fractions of a second, right? So light hits your eye, sound hits your ear, um, your fingers come in contact with a surface. That sensory input is not something that you cognitively understand. Those signals then travel to your brain, they undergo processing, and are entered into working memory, and that's when you actually perceive what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. when I see you sitting in a chair, or I see the color blue, or you know whatever it is, I hear your voice, these sorts of things. But by that time, even though it seems instantaneous to me, there's an amount of processing that's already happened. And some people might, this might be kind of a mind-boggling thing, right? Like, well, how does that work? The best example is if you touch your hand on a hot stove, right? 
you touch your hand on a hot stove, you will automatically pull it back before you think about pulling it back. Before you even feel that it's hot, your your body will just do it because all of that processing in your brain isn't taking place. The message is just getting to your amygdala. Your amygdala is saying, pull your hand away. So when you we think about these extreme skeptical claims, right? These people that say, well, you can't trust anything but, but your immediate experience. And then you think about the brain physiologically and all of the processing that takes place and the coloration or the subjective um, things that are introduced by just that um, gaggle of neurons that we've developed and have, you know, grown over our lifetimes that are that are all individual to each person it makes you wonder well maybe is our subjective experience something that we can skeptically question right yeah and and that's you you've brought up a a zone (laughs) stew really of of elements that have been the crux for Feeling like uh, people making the assertion that David Hume's work nearly made it impossible, <laughs> nearly made philosophy impossible, or and even if it weren't that apocalyptic, it certainly had that kind of rippling effect. And, uh, Kant moves on from that and, and essentially says, "Well, there is a priori knowledge of universals that seem to ex- that exist, and we seek those that that are steady and, and whatever." But then there's the immediate experience of the co- the common sense the ordinary life which doesn't see those things but it tries to take take in what it is seeing hearing uh, descartes was all about that hmm. you know if, if, if descartes really launched this idea which is still part of the discussion although not necessarily as strongly in some quarters that you have to suspend belief in all you enter this suspensive kind of space to then one by one little by little decide whether or not you can have some kind of partial assurance that what's coming in is worth thinking about or not deceptive or uh, all kinds of words for it the uh the epoche the the suspension uh as if one is putting with you could a picture from the 70s the 60s and 70s was a big deal and you could put somebody in a tank cover them up give them oxygen but they can't see they can't hear and and what that does to them psychologically um, that's sort of the suspension that uh Descartes may have been thinking about so that you you don't just assume anything. You slow way down and try to examine what comes in. Well, that that has been riffed on uh, since Descartes in, in a variety of ways to try to to try to acknowledge that there are things that we perhaps don't have the capacity to understand at all or yet, but maybe at all. And there are things we certainly can come to some knowledge, or reasonably certainly can come to some knowledge um, claims about. So what you described leads to that. that, uh, It's almost like the hound of the Baskervilles, the moors, where if you step in the wrong spot, you're going to go under, and you're not going to come back up. But if there's there's a path through all that foggy quicksand... Yeah, and and finding it is is difficult. The more experience you have with the other, right? Yeah. yeah. So as a psychologist or an aspiring psychologist, right? This is something that that fascinates me. I we recently had um, sort of an experience with this. We went over to eat eat dinner with my mom, and she has a ninety four year old neighbor that lives across the street by herself in a big house, and she showed up on on the front doorstep with her face bruised and um, she was holding a plastic bag with her home phone and her remote control for a TV in the bag. And she said that they didn't work. And then she fell and lost her glasses somewhere. And so I was walking down the road in the dark. I found her glasses and, and a phone book she was carrying for some reason. And we took her back and 
when we took her back and my mom was trying to, to get a hold of her, her daughter to come, you know, take care of her, just sort of observing and seeing what was going on, right? Mm-hmm. And seeing, you know, I, I, it, was, it was a very individual circumstance because mm-hmm. we've all had experiences with people who um, have dementia or Alzheimer's or these sorts of things. But hers was very different. She was very aware um, of, of her surroundings and what was going on. And she was very spry, um, but she just had terrible judgment, right? So mm-hmm. she was just, she would just do things um, and she would say immediately afterwards, that's not right. I, I know I shouldn't do that, mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. But she kept trying to do things that she probably could have reasonably done several years earlier. Um, and watching this, right, I'm thinking her reality is different from my reality, right? And in a very obvious way. And then when you extrapolate that out and you you start to see, um, you start to look at, at groups of behavior, right? You see how um, how African-Americans or women are treated or how they behave. And you think, well, their reality, what they experience is different from what I experience. Yeah. You know, and then you extrapolate that out further in a metaphysical sense into, well, we're all just humans, right? What if... How different is our reality from an animal's reality? Or if there were no humans, what would there be that could be considered reality when you remove the anthropic principle, principle, right? This is kind of the core of skepticism. This is this. The more you examine, the more you take yourself out of your own perspective and start to look at things from different ways. And again, as an aspiring psychologist, the animal thing really gets to me, right? Reading an article about the cats and realizing that a cat doesn't have the prefrontal cortex to understand the concept of the future. So if you leave for five minutes to get groceries or you leave for six months and then come back to the cat, it's all the same. You were there. Now you're now you're back. Now, their memory might have faded of you, and that will lead to a different response. but cognitively or emotionally if you can say that the response is the same because there's no projection into the future <laughs> that perspective right there right it's almost enough to break your brain right? like <laughs> oh my like how how could you live how could you have sensory input in some you know in many cases that's much sharper than humans and have cognitive you know things going on but have no conception of of the future right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's boggling. Yeah. And 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 the questions what well and I I don't have the capacity to other than anecdotal get into the idea of of animal um that animals I can't I I wouldn't have what we call a true belief or justified true belief. Which is really the basis of skepticism. Hmm. But the very fact that animals exist, we don't know quite how their their function and so on is is filled with possibilities to then take questions about that uh, back to our own sense of time or our own sense of and especially when you see real strange ones right like if you see a shark which has almost no brain but this immense central nervous system Mm. or you see an octopus that has almost all of its neurons spread evenly throughout its body and it's like it has it has almost the capability of a brain in each arm Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what what purpose does that serve? That that you know why doesn't it just have neurons that send messages to a brain and send them back? Is that too slow of a process to encourage survival? Probably not. So why all the processing power in the arms? You know, like why? What you think about these things? Oh yes. And it's like there are wonderful books about. I'm trying to remember the title. The most recent one was a few years ago, but it's about the specifically about the octopus and it just makes you see everything freshly again Mm. by thinking through this so that's and that is you're right that's what skepticism skepticism is not although everyday usage of it sometimes implies this it's not cynicism it's not closed-mindedness if it's authentic what it is is the opposite of that it's it's an open but cautious attempt to approach things and and 
with with the idea of gaining something. So in a very strange sense, and I'm on shaky ground with this because I'm not a hunter, but I think metaphorically it might work a little, or analogically, in a very strange sense, the careful hunter who approaches the process whether it's a photographer hunting for a shot or, or a, a, a deer hunter or whatever it happens to be, um, you can just barrel in <clears throat> and your results might get lucky, but they probably aren't going to be very good. Or you can, as you were talking about before, you can prepare, anticipate, uh, methodically approach things, say, wait a minute, why would it go here? Why would I think it would be there? What am I, what are my reasons for searching this out? That's really skepticism. Uh, uh, applied. Uh, it's uh, wishful thinking is not skepticism. And, and that's what frustrates me sometimes in our current environment because we have a, an undue amount of wishful thinking. I, I don't want to do this. Therefore, I'll say it doesn't exist. If something is bothersome like COVID, well, it just doesn't exist. It's a hoax. It's something else. Well, that's really easy to say. It, it, it makes the boogeyman go away, seemingly. But it doesn't. <laughs> it leads to deleterious effects. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit in the last episode. Um, you know, I think that if you're tr- relying on simplistic knowledge, right, you might come up with a reliable, something that is a reliable claim, but that isn't valid, right? And um, you, I, you see a lot of that, especially with the consumption patterns of modern knowledge focused in in social media right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you see a lot of memes or posts that say well because of this that and here's here's the evidence for it well i can get you in a lot of trouble because the funny one that <laughs> an interesting one i just had in my statistics textbook right said there is an almost perfect correlation between the usage of microsoft outlook and drowning in pools pool deaths right mm-hmm. so it's a reliable claim to say the more somebody uses Microsoft Outlook, the greater the chances they will drown in a pool. But right? it's not a causal. There's no causal effect. No, right. It's right. not. It's not right. a valid premise. Yeah. And you see a lot so of these. The person things who uses around. Microsoft Outlook may also be a person who's going to drown. Yeah. You know, and and so the mind wants to say, oh, then this leads to that. But no, that's where the skepticism. Why would I think that? What are the other data? What are the data really saying? <sighs> But, you, but one needs a, a desire to poke, but but equally and perhaps even more so, the desire to to think about what it is that one has found and how it fits. Not, I want to. So 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 conspiracy theories are not skepticism. Uh, just like faith hmm. is is not the same thing as empiricism, right? Because it's kind of the directionality of it, right? You're starting yeah. with an assumption, and then you're trying to find supporting evidence for that assumption, rather than, like you said earlier, just being open and saying, well, wait a minute. If this is the way something is, what sort of questions can I ask to, to get at what the truth of it is, you know? Husserl, who, uh, who was working primarily in the 19th century into the early 20th, but said that that there's an inner and there's an outer. Well, he's not the first one to say it, and that won't be the last. But but this is he came back to the idea of the apache, the suspension, the, the 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 suspending the basic beliefs. He went back to Descartes, and he's saying, okay, you 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 mustn't assume anything. Take in what you're seeing, however you're taking it in, and then see. Try to figure out what you can do with that in in contextualizing or rethinking the problem, mm-hmm. whatever the problem happens to be. So, so you, there's we we have basic experiences, and then we have the external world. And sometimes we we say we have basic experiences of the external world, but there are uh, people who argue that all the experiences we have are totally internal. Mm-hmm. Even this one might be all internalized, right? And, and, and for those folks, um, and 
And that leads to a kind of thing called solipsism in which the only thing that, that exists is the alone self. <laughs> That's what solipsist is, is an alone self. And so if we, if we cannot prove existence of anything but our own thoughts, then we're saying we know nothing of the external world. Hmm. Well, and, and philosophers try to bridge that in various ways to say, well, what can we know of the external world? What can Is there anything we can have justified true belief or some true belief about that actually exists beyond our own perceptions? And that's all skepticism. Yeah. And, and the human brain is like just the perfect encapsulation of of skepticism right you could have the extreme skeptics that say and they're not wrong right that so everything that you experience happens in a brain that has no sensory capabilities of its own and is just inside a, a thick bone skull and that's that's all there is but the interplay between philosophy and science and starting with, you know, um, a point of, 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 and then starting from, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a beginning belief and then working off of that is to say, okay, well, that's true, right? Everything that I experience is inside a bone case with something that has no, no sensory input of its own. But there is physical systems that connect that brain to the outside world. Now. The other fallacy would be to say those those sensory systems that connect that brain are telling me everything there is to know about the world. No, because we look at it further, right? And we say, well, no, we know that that this eyeball, this physical thing is only capable of seeing certain types of light. And we know that this ear is only capable of sensing certain sounds and these sorts of things. So as a result, we're getting some picture of what's going on but we're not seeing the whole picture and the accuracy of the picture comes back to that brain in the case and how it's integrating this information and how it's doing this stuff. I'm going to jump in with this and you can say, no, we shouldn't go there yet. <laughs> <laughs> but this is why I, you know, I love to read philosophy about pop culture. And there's a whole series of these Mark White and other editors who uh, take an academic approach to so my library is replete with these, and, and some of them are about horror. And and this is, I told you before we started, this has got me thinking about some fresh article writing about a topic that I like to go into. And and But when you think about, and, and I read a piece uh, in one of these books uh, to prepare for today, that just turned all the lights on, and it was really fun. Because Descartes said, Consistent with what I can verify in my experience, it could be the case that everything that appears to me is the creation of an evil demon and that the world as I know it does not exist. And if you take that and, and, and extrapolate a bit into Stephen King land, <laughs> the horror realm, of, of whether film or literature, you, you can say accurately that skepticism in a sense, threatens ordinary reality or ordinary belief. And it's not hard to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's why it's potent. That's why it, it needs to be applied with either some intent from a literary viewpoint. I want to scare you. I can whip up a ghost story. I'm going to scare you, even though we're sitting right here in the light. We can get a shiver. Right? And, and so horror is, is it dramatizes this that the that the ordinary can go berserk at any moment hmm. and we don't want that uh and and this is where it goes back to hume who said the reason can't save us so you think well okay if if i go with this, this the ordinary scenario it could be possible that uh, i might turn into a zombie at some point nothing's telling me I can't. <laughs> okay, let's tell a good story about that. Uh, I, I think that's, that's probably, it's it's fun in a sense, but it also uh, illustrates the power of skepticism. Yeah, and that's an underlying principle of reality that adds that grounding measure to skepticism. That's consistency, right? And that's what I was experiencing watching 
my mother's 94 year old neighbor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is that I, be- I don't believe that her reality was a consistent thing from moment to moment. And that, if that were to happen, that is where your logical principles start to break up, right? If, how would you, how could you be truly skeptical in a logical, rational way and establish knowledge that you could trust if the reality you were experiencing was not consistent from moment to moment? Yeah. You know, the fact that it is consistent from moment to moment is the only thing that allows us to say we have basic principles we can work off of to examine what what is real what we know and 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 and, are, and then we ask and are those basic pr- principles woven into the fabric of the universe and therefore a priori or are they things that we have created as our basic principles currently <laughs> yeah yeah it's fascinating so we talked a lot about the formative aspects of skepticism in the first episode we've touched on a little bit of them here human cotton that sort of thing is there anything else you'd like to say about um the history of skepticism or people who contributed to it before we move on well i i think i mean we've, we've mentioned some of the the regular players but i don't think we've the, the one thing i'll mention then we can we can go where you want to is is the postmodern skepticism and i think we we can sense this going on you know now we are in the postmodern age and is uh, the work of of people like uh jean francois leotard who said that was skepticism of systems of whole systems uh, that the postmodern skepticism is of skepticism of anything meta, hmm. the meta structure, the meta narrative, uh, and so that put that up against we, people talk about the greatest generation, the narrative of World War II. Well, the narrative of World War II gets caricatured in some in some ways, so that the the ugliness, the horror, and the not so black and whiteness of much of it um, has faded into that structural narrative of the heroes undoubtedly there was heroism but there but and not a relativistic thing but the but the idea that there was an awful lot of ugliness that went on that didn't necessarily have to either and if it did have to that it's not nearly acknowledged as much as it ought to be and the the tale of the marvelous hero becomes that Greek mythology kind of thing. And postmodern skepticism says you have to take that apart if you're going to find out what it is that you're really made of. It's sort of an atomistic psychological yeah. <laughs> philosophy. Yeah, I saw I saw a meme this week and it, it just had a, a picture of a guy's stern face and it said, um, the World War II vet watching you play a video game of the worst day of his life. Right. And that that sort of encapsulates that. Right. Is these you know, you might be playing a game and you think that it's this fun thing or it has this heroic narrative or whatever. Right. It was the worst day of somebody's life. Somebody was out there watching people die, barely surviving, you know, doing these sorts of things. Yes. Yeah. And that that is important. Right. When especially when we're looking at history. I think so. Um, you know, I, I think that the, so the structural and, I, and I'm not suggesting I, I don't hold that everything ought to be dismantled down to the totally unrecognizable. I think it should be I think it should be not dismantled. It should be archaeologically revealed. I think that, that if you're going to have a, a system, then you better make sure that that system is answering the questions that need to be answered about how the system was developed. And that's really the questions that are swirling around our culture now about the founders and, and, and everything. It's not an attempt to take apart, to, to just demolish and throw away the idea of democracy hmm. or a democratic republic. The skepticism is in we know things and we don't even acknowledge that we know them. In fact, we're not going to let people know them. That's not skepticism. It's skepticism of a system that says you can't teach this, you can't say that, you can't make anybody uncomfortable, and so on and so forth. 
because if we, it's, it's as much as, as if to say, if you reveal the knowledge that you have and try to apply it, then something is so fragile it can't possibly function. Hmm. That's where skepticism can be applied well, but it's very painful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, looking at, um, you know, the history of skepticism, I think the one thing that we didn't cover in the first episode, and I'd just like to shout it out, we have a pretty a, a pretty big international following. We have a lot of listeners in India. Mm-hmm. One thing that I found was kind of interesting in doing some more research for this episode is, I'm going to butcher the name, but there was a philosophical school of the Ajanya, A-J-N-A-N-A, and um, they sort of... Um, developed skepticism at the same time as as the the pre-socratic greeks did yes and um it, it was sort of a cornerstone of buddhism some of the, the 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 first disciples of buddha were from this school and influenced a lot of um the buddhist religion i'm so glad that you've you've opened this up because we will we will go into this we're going to talk a lot more of international of cultural Things we, we, you know, you and I on the side talked about that. But yes, I mean, in, in Sanskrit, essentially the word for philosophy means seeing. Hmm. Well, all right. So if philosophy is seeing, then, then, then skepticism is trying to clarify one's seeing. Right. Uh, and, and, and across the, the systems, so remember eudaimonia. We've talked about this over the Greek idea of a good life. Mm. Okay. The Romans had the summum bonum, the great life. Uh, but in Sanskrit, you have the parama purusha artha, which is the supreme personal good. And these were developing roughly some, some non-Western was before the Western. Uh, and that needs to be acknowledged over and over again, even though we've known that somehow we know it, we forget it, we come to know it again. But in some cases, it's sort of a parallel development and it's a very interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about looking at some of the philosophy from, from different regions. Yeah. Um, because you know the the Greeks are obviously very important, very foundational to a lot of Western philosophical thought. Um, but there almost comes a point where I mean, if if you've been studying long enough, you you know um, not everything there is to know about the the philosophy itself, because that's a that's an ever evolving process. But the historical tenets of it, mm-hmm. and so looking at some of these some of these other. Um, cultural philosophies in, in different parts of the world is refreshing, right? And then and it gives you a different perspective on things. Absolutely. So, yeah, we'll we'll look at some of that that stuff in the future. But I, I wanted to just real quick slip that in there that I'm glad you um, did. Yeah. You know that there was it wasn't just the Greeks, you know, no. thinking about skepticism back in back in the day. No. So we'll ask a couple other speculative questions before we wrap up the show. Um, and the first one is is a bit of a doozy <laughs> so how do you view skepticism in light of modern quantum physics <laughs> so there's a fascinating article this week right um talking about how there's a you know there's a breakthrough in, in quantum computing mm-hmm. and that the world's most powerful quantum computer is now 99 percent accurate right and in the world of traditional computers, that'd be completely unacceptable. You know, like, no, you expect to put in calculations and have them come out accurate every time. But in quantum computing, um, what we found out from, from the beginning of quantum computing is that we don't really know what's going on. And it comes back to kind of Schrodinger's cat, right? Well, we mm-hmm. don't really know what state something is in until we observe it. What, how do you think that ties in with skepticism, this quantum view of the world? I, that's a that's a marvelous question. Didn't know you were going to do that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you've I think you've implied your. I think I hear your response to the question and what you've just said. In uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong because I want to know yours. Mine would be that the skeptical ap- approach is kind of embedded in quantum 
mechanics as a, I, as a lay person, if I say I understand as a lay person to say, I don't understand much at all. Right. But, but, but there are some things that are made that are written so that we can, and, and as you just described, and so entanglement being another one. So the fact that you can't be absolutely certain means that uh, you need to be asking questions about where the uncertainty lies is there a source of the uncertainty can that can that can that knowledge be built is there a way to strengthen the true belief you might have in what an entangled particle does or whether the cat is also, you know alive or dead so i think that skepticism in an odd way is built into the fabric the quantum fabric I think so too. And, you know, I think that it, it's again, it's just another um, experience with the other, right? Especially as a lay person. I think as a lay person, you know, we have this temptation to say, well, since we can't understand it, it must just be some purely mathematical thing. And it's not actually how reality works. It's just describing how it works so that we understand it or this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. They've done experimental studies and they've, they've seen these things actually happen. They've quantumly entangled a living thing, a tardigrade just mm-hmm. recently. Yes, yeah, I've read about and, that. Um, yeah. and so when you're confronted with that reality, right, and that, okay, well, things don't necessarily exist in one state at a given time, it really does open up this, this skeptical um, course of, of analysis about the reality that we live in right and they're developing series to try to explain these things um and a lot of it's in its infancy um but but we know that quantum physics very very accurately describes things at small scales um you know and and the same way general relativity is is almost in 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 refutable at, at large scales quantum physics is very similar at small scales everything about humanity is in its infancy that's true <laughs> you know I, I i i was just delighting in you 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 saying that because you know, I've, had, I've had this pet phrase for far too long and i think students got tired of me saying it when i, when I say we were barely out of the caves but but this week to to, to to draw on what you're talking about not only the tardigrade stories but uh, a footprint, footprint uh, of some million years old of essentially humanoid form, proto-human, have been found. All right, something like us was sh- shambling around the mud long long ago but humanity in the sense of we under that we like to speak of it in the sense of having communication writing and so on well maybe and commerce maybe commerce 30,000 years maybe the forms of government and social creation of a kind that we might say total humanity well several thousand years you know and, and so we talk about things as if they're ancient but they aren't right <laughs> and and quantum stuff oh my gosh that's yeah. just wow it just happened the bubble just popped up yeah and it's 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 funny thinking about this this sort of thing and just the effects that it has on us right and it's a it's almost a paradigm shift right when you realize that you know okay well how we how we metaphysically view um the universe that we live in might have to change to sort of accommodate these sorts of things and what that will look like and what that says about humanity like our anthropic principle mm-hmm. you know and these sorts of things and and what lays outside possibly outside of the universe or possibly before or after these sorts of things it raises these huge questions and so it can raise huge questions like that, but it can also raise small ones. Right before we started podcasting, I got a text message from a friend that said, um, in your opinion, should the word tra- do we need the word travesty? And I said, no, I don't think we need the word travesty. Need is a, is a, is a strong word. Um, but does the word travesty have a shade of meaning that's not, not portrayed by its synonyms? Yeah, I think so. 
So I think a more interesting philosophical question is to ask, with how few words could humanity continue to exist? And would that tangibly shape our cognitive processes? It, right? it already is tangibly shaping our cognitive processes. And it's a really interesting email exchange that you just described. We know that people, even though there are more words than ever now, dictionaries expand, word creation is expanding. The overall vocabulary possessed by a standard person in our culture, as an example, has reduced measurably. George Orwell in 1984 had this, this, <laughs> this picked out already. Let's see. What's the, what's the best way to control people by giving them fewer words, by making them want to not have as many words? So you reduce the dictionary down to a basic level of maybe 10,000 words or 9,000 words as that, that, in that novel, right? But that way, fewer words, fewer shades of meaning, therefore a communication that can be straightforward and used by authoritarians. And so my response would have been different than yours to this extent. Yes, we absolutely need – we need – Every word we invent, we don't need it because it's a word that was used for the good. We need it as a representative of where our thoughts were going, good, bad, or ill. And we don't need to use it all the time. We need to use it carefully. But to recognize how humanity has developed its intellect collectively, then we need to have those words. They are markers. Yeah, yeah. Because if you look up travesty, right, and you look at synonyms, you have misrepresentation or distortion those don't that doesn't no. mean the same thing no, there, there's, <laughs> there's a there's a quality of travesty that doesn't there's almost it, those. and it's it's almost an ethical um overtone really that's not portrayed by misrepresentation or distortion that's interesting you just said ethical i know we're trying to close but we <laughs> but i, I want to put this out there so we can pick it up on it later press but ethics is very much a part of, or has been, in some interpretations of skepticism. Hmm. So, a skeptical question, if you're uh, about to sell a house, would be to say, I know that my roof is leaky. Do I have to tell a potential buyer that? Because you have knowledge. What are you going to do with that knowledge? If that knowledge is accurate, then it implies that not sharing that knowledge can then be used to advance you, but not the people who are going to acquire something that you have had. And you can take that right back to what I said before about stretching back to it. When you, if you find out truths about your society, whatever society it is, and you are unwilling to examine those truths, then you are perpetuating a, a hierarchical, uh, privileged structure that is only going to damage a lot of people. Hmm. So, so skepticism and ethics interweave. Yeah, and so we're really seeing how you know the pillars of philosophy, right? They skepticism is is inextricably linked with knowledge, which is one of those pillars. Hmm. Which is why we didn't decide to, to dedicate a whole episode to logic. But we did decide to dedicate a second episode to skepticism because they, <laughs> they work together so well. One last question, all right? And I have a feeling it might not be short. Um, <laughs> you know me. I'll, I'll try to be short. You, you can answer it yourself. <laughs> Does skepticism have a role in aesthetic or axiological considerations? Well, I, 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 will, I will launch too fast and say Yes. How do you know something is beautiful is a is an epistemological question, but the, the the skeptical question would be and and what's justifying that true belief what what underlies that packet of knowledge? Is it in fact knowledge or is it just assertion? Hmm. Um, so just just for the aesthetics that I think built into that classic uh, beautiful um, works yeah i see i think that i think aesthetics is is the difficult one mm. if i'm thinking about it right because 
it kind of comes back to the the platonic ideals to an extent, right? I mm-hmm. think that if we say we can be skeptical aesthetically, it's almost an admission of platonic ideals that there is something out there that we're comparing artistic or aesthetic things to. And I'm not sure that that is um, is supportable, right? So music, I, I, I go back to music because mu- music is my main art form, right? Sure. Um, lots of, in Western music, we have an idea of what a good song and a bad song is. But that knowledge is based firmly in the chromatic scale, right? But if you travel to India, they don't have... A, a chromatic scale. There aren't there aren't distinct intervals between notes. Instruments slide between notes. You have vibrato built into a lot of things. So you're conce- you can have diatonic. You can have all of these different types of tonal scales, and they may sound strange or um, dissonant to a Western ear before the specific group that's creating the music, that may be a beautiful song. So how we describe, you know, how we apply skepticism, how, how do we, how we question what would make a good song or, um, you know, or even what makes a song, right? Mm -hmm. To me, that's a hard, that seems like it should be a difficult thing to establish. I think it's it is nothing. Skepticism doesn't imply that answers are going to just be found because the questions have been asked. Skepticism is about asking questions to make sure that one isn't too sure where one shouldn't be. (laughs) 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 Oh dear! (laughs) I told you this is going to be a rough one. (laughs) Yeah, it's just. so, so you can be skeptical about people. People, they perhaps misuse the word, but people are skeptical about art frequently. Hmm. What they when they often what it means is, art is my here's my boundaries A and B between what is art and what is not, and it might be a very narrow range. Art is realistic representation. Period. None of this abstract and none of this because I don't call that art. Okay. Well, for an individual, they can establish whatever criterion they want uh, for that. But if you're talking about the whole branch of aesthetics, then it's incumbent to continue asking, well, is there an a priori idealistic the ideal of what's beautiful through all time? In all circumstances, for humans and for not humans, for nature, for or 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 is it possible to ask the questions that lead us to see that what is considered beautiful in a human form has shifted frequently? And and if so, do we have a knowledge of what beauty itself is, or do we have a knowledge of what our own shifting definitions of it have been? Hmm. And so skeptical questions can ask, questions asked like this lead us to well what's what's really a true belief and what has been a temporary belief? Yeah, okay, so that makes sense, right? So rather than looking at skepticism as applying to the output of of an art an artistic form or an aesthetic form, you're instead directing the skepticism inward towards our knowledge and beliefs about how we interpret these these artistic. I things. think the inward direction, you know, across the history, we've talked about this across the history of, of skepticism internationally. I think the establishment of an inner and an outer, and it's often it's easier to work with the inner. Easier may not be the best word, but it's more accessible hmm. than the outer. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. I'm really glad we did this episode. I, I didn't think that we, I, I was thinking, oh, it's going to be kind of short and, you know, we're, we're going to rehash a lot of stuff we did in the past. It turned out to be pretty long and we didn't really go over much of anything that we covered in the first episode. So I'm, I'm glad that we did it and it gives me a lot of um, hope 
going forward and re-examining some topics that we've we've looked at in the past. But hopefully um, next time we'll finish up our our series on on the pillars of philosophy and then we'll move on to to new ground. So until next time, keep pondering. Thank you.